hundred years. Take me back when I was a kid. Never had to worry about what I did. But I'm a man now. What's the plan now? Gotta get it done. No time for fun now. Take me back when I was a kid. Never had to worry about what I did. But I'm a man now. What's the plan now? Gotta move on. Those Who the f is Mike Young? Would like to thank our incredible sponsor, Blue Team. Ain't nothing funny about a commercial disaster or renovation project. Blue Team handles all aspects of construction, roofing, and disaster recovery for commercial property owners and operators throughout the U.S. No company comes even close to Blue Team. Blue Team handles the projects from start to finish so our clients can focus on running their business, and that is no joke. Call the experts at Blue Team at 855 522 2583. Blue team. Anywhere, anytime. Oscar Sunday. Pacing around my apartment. Thinking about what to say. I think I've got it. Who the F is Mike Young? This is another podcast. I cannot stop rapping. I am on caffeine. Who the F is Mike Young? Oscar Sunday. Big day in LA. Looming clouds. Who's going to win the Oscar this year? Who knows? I really don't care. I really don't. You just want to see good art get made. But I figured this was a good day for me to tell a story on the Who the F is Mike Young podcast about my first feature film experience and how gut-wrenching and great and terrible and funny and dramatic and emotional it was. There was an interview with Scorsese after The Irishman, and he talked about when you're making a movie, if you don't get physically sick, then you're just not in it. If you're not really, really just feeling terrible and everything matters so much you want to cry, then you're just not doing it. Well, I didn't even direct this movie that I felt like crying over. So I will tell you the story. And it goes like this. Six years ago... I get a phone call from a friend in Detroit. Six, six and a half years ago, I get a phone call. Adam Niskar, a neighborhood kid, a kid I grew up with, one of the funniest kids in the neighborhood. I played baseball with his brother my whole life. They were always in the neighborhood. Adam was this little fire plug, hilarious, little funny fat kid who was somehow fat and fast. You never see that in life anymore, but There are athletes like that who are fat and fast when you're a kid. You don't know how it happens. It's almost like there's a skinny, fat, fast person inside of a chubby little body that can't stop eating M&Ms. Well, that's what this kid was. And Adam was hilarious, and he was a great kid. And Adam grew up, and he leaned out, and he became a great-looking, super stud athlete, ladies' man. Life was going great. Everything was on point. Everything was on path. Was he living wild? Yes, he was living a little bit wild for himself. He was partying hard. He felt invincible. And sometimes, you know, when you're in your teenage years and you're in your early 20s, you know, you can't help it, but the brain's not fully developed and you truly feel invincible. I think about myself in my teen years and I went through some problems and some troubled times and I was doing stupid things. I was fighting. I was stealing. I was, you know, doing a lot of things. And the dialogue that was always running in my mind was, I'm going to live forever. Like, whatever. I'm, I'm here now. Let's make it happen. You know what I mean? I don't care. I'm, no, nothing can touch me. 
whatever situation I get into, I'll fight my way out of. I could go. You just feel invincible, and it's just a trick that nature plays on you, and it's not a good trick. So Adam comes up in the world, and he's doing great, and he starts working for a company called Quicken Loans. Quicken Loans is owned by Dan Gilbert, who also owns the Cleveland Cavalier basketball team. Everybody in this story is from my area, from my neighborhood. At the time, I had never met Dan Gilbert. I heard about Dan because when I was growing up in Southfield, Dan Gilbert was a baseball coach, and he always had the championship teams. And I was a good enough baseball player to where I would get drafted every year in our you know, leagues, and I'd be put with kids three and four years older than me, which was a great honor to be that good, but it also lined me up against pitchers that I was terrified to hit against because kids were throwing smoke and I couldn't stand in the box and it just let me know early I'm afraid of getting hit by a pitch and I don't have the balls to be the baseball player that they thought I was going to be. So I knew who Dan Gilbert was. He was well-known in the area. At the time, he was like a bookmaker. He was making money, hustling every which way. And that's just so you know out there, you can change your life around because Dan, it's well-documented. Dan had gotten into a little bit of trouble when he was in college booking games. But the bottom line was he turned it all around, created Quicken Loans, became a self-made billionaire, bought the Cleveland Cavaliers, bought... 62 other companies and flourished as a businessman. So I knew who Dan was. I knew who Adam was. I was out here hustling in LA, doing a lot of stand-up comedy. I was on my tour, the Young American Comedy Tour. I had sold a couple TV shows to HBO, things that never got made. I had a couple writing credits, but nothing really, you know, that anybody was really talking about. But I really fancied myself as an excellent writer. I just thought... I know, I know I'm a writer. I know I could be a writer if somebody just gives me the chance. So one day I get a call from my brother. My brother's in Detroit. He runs into Adam at the bar, at a bar. He runs into Adam Niskar at a bar. Now, the part of the story that I haven't told you yet, but will make sense in the movie, is when Adam was 23 or 24 years old, he was kicking ass at Quicken Loans. He was working under Dan. He was doing great, making money, but he was partying hard. He was living hard. He was living strong. And one day he dove into 16 inches of water in a lake, and he snapped his neck and became a quadriplegic. And it turned his life upside down, to say the least. And this is somebody who lived with fire in their heart. It's like, it's like an athlete. It's like any tragic athlete situation you see on the field. You see somebody go down. They end up in a wheelchair for life. Adam was messing around. Every week he had gone to the same lake and dove off the same area. And this particular day, his dog was in front of the, uh, of the dock. So instead of going straight, he went a little bit to the left, and it was a sandbar. He snapped his neck. His friends saved his life. He often wished that they didn't, and they let him drown, but they saved him. They got him into the hospital, and his life was changed forever. So Adam goes into the hospital. He goes into rehab. Slowly but surely, he starts to figure out that he wants to live. Obviously, there was depression. There were suicidal thoughts. There were attempts at suicide, and he wants to live. And through this process, he starts to write a journal about his life. And he writes this journal, and it becomes what I, to this day, think is one of the funniest yet most tragic journals I've ever read in my life. And it was the story of his comeback. And obviously, he was never going to walk again, 
because the technology wasn't there. He was quadriplegic from the shoulders down. But he taught himself every angle of survival. You know, when you can't move your fingers, you put your wrists together to hold a fork. When you can't get out of bed because you have no muscle control, you learn to roll onto a plank, onto a chair. He developed his own system of living. But throughout this journey, he would go into, and he wrote all about it, and he wrote a 400 maybe 350 page journal. So he writes this journal in the journal of these amazing stories. His Russian maids are coming over every week and they're stealing randomly. You know, and he can't catch them. He can't really prove anything. But every now and then a check is missing. A few hundred dollars is missing from an account. Cash is missing. Every now and then a, a, a bracelet goes missing. So he's trying to get his life together and the help is stealing from him. He gets a Polish maid company that shows up five deep in a white van. None of them speak English. They just come in and spin his life upside down. His dad, from the accident, you know, it traumatized and obviously majorly affected the entire family. His brother started drinking and partying and gambling and going into his own world. And Adam tells a story how his mom every day was so afraid she'd walk in and he'd be dead. She would yell his name before she even came into the house fully. And she would open the door and just go, Adam! And he got so annoyed by this behavior by his mom. And he wrote about this. He said one day he just pretended he was dead and he had a fake blood pellet. He had a blood pellet, and he bit it, and he slumped over in his chair and pretended he was dead. His mom walked in with the groceries, saw him fake dead, and she fainted at the front door. So he writes this journal, and it's full of anecdotes, and it's full of these amazing pieces of short story. And he goes to a strip club one night, and in the strip club, he unfortunately, he soils himself, so he makes his friends take him out, and nobody knows what to do, so they lay him on the ground, so now he's laying on the ground outside of a strip club after getting a dancer's number, and because the dancer had a fetish, and she liked quadriplegics, and he couldn't believe it, there was like a quad fetish, and all these stories are in here, and he, he finishes the journal, he gives it to Dan Gilbert, and Dan reads it, and Dan Gilbert is a, vision, he's a visionary, He's a visionary. He just is. Some people have a gift. Uh, and Dan's just one of these dudes. He was absolutely a control freak in this process. And he and I butted heads many times. But that's what happens when you care so much and somebody else cares so much. You're going you're gonna to battle. But they write the journal. Dan gets the journal. He does a little editing on it, you know, puts a little time into it, and it comes out, and it, to me, could be a best-selling book, right? So one day I'm in L.A., I get a call from my brother. My brother says, Adam Niskar wrote a journal about his life. Dan Gilbert's thinking about making it an independent film. You have to talk to Adam. Next day, Adam calls me. I've known, like I said, I've known his family. I've known his brother. I know his mom and dad. I've known him for years. I did a benefit with Adam, uh, for Adam, I did a charity benefit at Detroit Opera House with Artie Lang years earlier. We did it to raise money for Adam's situation. Artie Lang saw Adam in a wheelchair. It reminded him of his father's situation. And Artie Lang went into a full-blown heroin spiral and ended up homeless for the next two years. So, sorry, Artie. It wasn't my fault. You just slid when you saw Adam. That's, but that's, my, that's a little sidebar. 
my brother calls me. He tells me they're going to make this movie. They want to make this movie. So I, he, I, he has Adam call me. Adam calls me. Hey, you'd be perfect for this. I'm telling you, you got to read this. I think we're going to make a movie. Dan really wants to make the movie. And Dan's already thinking about entertainment because there's a 42% tax incentive at the time to shoot movies in Detroit. So they were trying to pull people into Detroit to shoot movies. And what really ended up happening is a bunch of Hollywood clowns came into Detroit. They abused the city. They didn't really take care of it. They came in. They got their tax incentive. They got their money back. They scammed a bunch of people, and they left. I wish I was there because I would have pulled some trick-trick type of shit on a no-fly zone situation, but I wasn't there at the time they were doing that. So, And that goes for a bunch of people that were out here making movies. You know who you are. And so I get the journal. Adam tells me they're thinking about making this movie. Will you please read my journal? Dan's going to want to talk to you just to hear what your potential take would be. They are going to be looking for writers. He sends me, he emails me the journal. I start to read the journal. And immediately within you know, two hours of all these anecdotes and that all, all the things that I'm reading, I'm just like, I mean, there's, a, there's, a, there's an anecdote where just to show you what Adam was like, when he was a kid, he'd just be a little fat kid in his underwear running outside. His brother would throw his baseball glove out in the snow. Adam would run out bare feet in the snow at six years old. Look at his brother. His brother would slam the door, the sliding glass door, lock Adam out. Adam would take one look at him, go pull a brick from the porch and throw a brick through the glass window, shatter the entire glass window and just stomp like an angry little fat little fat Jewish boy and just stomp angrily through the house on glass, didn't give a shit, just to give you an idea of what the spirit and the fire of this kid was. So I read the journal and immediately my first thought is this is little Miss Sunshine in a wheelchair. This is a kid with who sees the world through certain type of point of view and certain eyes and a certain lens and he just views the world as, you know, at first he just views it as you know, his playground, he's going to live, do what he wants, you know, live hard, not really pay attention, not be too conscious. And when this traumatic event happens and he starts to get his life in order, he finally thank God because otherwise he'd be depressed. He starts to kind of see, you know, where he went wrong and see the humor in all of it. And, you know, his dad, his dad couldn't handle anything. So his dad starts like sleeping with women in the back of the house and he's smoking pot and Adam's just trying to get some orange juice out of the fridge, but he can't reach it. Nobody's around to help him. It was a mess. So I read the journal. I get back to Adam within a week. I said, dude, this is Little Miss Sunshine in a wheelchair. I already see the movie. It opens up with you as a six-year-old kid, underwear, throwing a brick through the glass window and stomping through the house. I already know what this is. And we're going to tell it in a nonlinear fashion. We're going to go back in time and we're going to have all the thoughts that are going through your head while you're floating in the water dying because he recorded his thoughts onto this journal. So like he'd be floating there thinking he was dying Yet he was so conscious that he would see like a rapper, like a Snickers bar rapper float through or an M&M rapper. And it would be like regular M&Ms. And his actual thoughts were like, who likes regular M&Ms anymore? It's all about peanut M&Ms. And it was just this little notations on life and what you're feeling and what you're thinking when you're dying. And he was dying. And... So I told him what I thought of the movie. He connected me to Dan Gilbert, who, again, I'd known about him. I've heard about him for so long, but I never really met him. And so I get a phone call, you know, the next week. 
I get on the phone, and Dan's like really funny. He's, he's such a funny dude. And he kind of talks like this, right? He talks like he's growling all the time. And he's like, yeah, maybe you're the guy, maybe you're not the guy. I don't know. Like, where, where'd you grow up? Like, what area? And I, I grew up like in the, maybe I wouldn't say the poorer section, but he grew up in like a little bit of a nicer area of the same town. So you know how like cities have, you could be from the same city, but not from the same socioeconomic moment or, you know, area. So we were like, we still were good. We were fine. I was never hurting for food, but we were on the other side of the tracks. And by tracks, I mean the other side of like Bell Road is called. So we're, this is Detroit, South, this is Southfield, Michigan. So, so Dan's like, where'd you grow up? And we start talking and I'm like, oh my God, I knew the girls that were your age and they had younger sisters that were so pretty. And then we start going down our top 10 of prettiest girls in the neighborhood. And I'm like, oh my God, Julie Sachs lived one block away from me and she'd ride her bike. And I swear to God, she's the world's first supermodel. And he's like, I can't believe you said that. She was my favorite girl too. And she was the prettiest girl I ever saw. And then I'm like, oh my God, I had the biggest crush on this girl, Kelly Niemer. And he's like, I knew Kelly Niemer too. I had a big crush but I was two years older. So immediately I'm just bonding. I call it bonding with a billionaire because a lot of people, you know, you watch TV and you watch the news and, you know, I'm not one of those people who hates wealthy people for doing, inventing great things. You know, I'm not one of these, don't, don't be, I don't hate people who made money. I don't hate on people who've done well. I only hate on people who are hateable. You know, a lot of people made a lot of money and then do well with it. You know, and this is a guy who put a ton of money into many charities and he's, he's philanthropy beyond and just a funny, funny dude. So to me, he was just like a friend and he talked like a friend and we bonded. So we're on the phone for about a half hour. He's like, all right, I'm going to fly you into Michigan. We're going to sit down and really go over this. We're going to hammer this out. So about a, three weeks later, he flies me to Detroit. I go to his office, and it's just me and Dan Gilbert sitting in a conference room talking about making this movie. And Adam, who wrote the journal, he's still working in Dan's office, but he's not in the meeting yet. Dan and I start talking. I start, you know, I come in with an outline, fully prepared. You know, I just lay a loose outline, you know, in there just so he knows that I'm serious about this. And I show him where this is going, and we just connect. And sometimes when you connect like that on story, you just have to let it keep flowing, like, you've got to just not stop that process. So the story is he's feeling what I'm saying, and I'm feeling what he's saying, and we're excited. We're going to make this movie. And he's like, how much do you think it is? And in my mind, I'm like, we can make this movie for $3 million. He's like, no problem, but I'll, I'm going to finance it myself. So we don't even sign a contract. Dan shakes my hand at the end of the meeting, and he says, you got the deal. I'll call your lawyer. That's it. Just your lawyer will tell me what it is. And it was my first hiring of a feature film. And it was $50,000, $60,000. And I'm just saying the price just because I just want writers out there to know that like your first deal is not going to be huge. But you take it when you love the project and it's worth putting the money away and just kind of like, you know, whatever. Wrap up, tighten up your budget, whatever you got to do. It was my first movie and done properly as a deal. So I call my lawyer, Jared Levine and Corinne Farley, my gangster lawyers who are just like the best at what they do. And they lock in my deal and that's it. We, we, we lock in the deal. So we shake hands and Dan's like, listen, 
Tomorrow, the team plays in Seattle. Hop on my plane. We'll go for the weekend to Seattle. Then we play the Clippers. I'll drop you off in L.A. You know, you'll just come to L.A. and you'll watch the Clipper game with us. So next thing I know, I got a best friend in Dan Gilbert. I hop on the plane to Seattle, and we take Adam with us. We load, we load Adam up. We put him in. His wheelchair is 700 pounds. We lift him and put him in there. Nine of us help get the wheelchair up and running. Dan's got his crew. I'm just along for the ride. I'm celebrating with Adam because we're kind of celebrating that we're going to move forward with this movie. I tell Adam, yo, I'm coming back to Detroit to spend like five days with you. I want to see how you live. I want to see, you know, how you operate every day. I want to catch your attitude. I want to be around your work, meet your family, just kind of be around and get a vibe before I go away and start writing. So this is all in motion. Everything's in motion. We go, we have the best weekend in Seattle, have a great time over here in LA with the Clippers. There might even have been a Vegas trip in the midst of it all. All I know is I was rolling high on a G5, loving life, about to write my first feature film. So Dan has a brother. Dan's brother's name is Gary Gilbert. Gary Gilbert produced the movie uh, Garden State and a couple other movies. He produced La La Land, you know, 10 years after, 15 years after Garden State. He knows how to produce movies. He's been in the business a while. And Dan says to me in the midst of all of our, because this is a comedy that I'm about to write. This is a dark comedy with dramatic undertones, tragedy mixed with comedy. And Dan says to me, my brother's in the business. We're going to have to include him at some point because I have to, you know, I'm just going to have to. And Dan doesn't have the, I'll just be honest, Dan doesn't have the same humor or sensibility that his brother has. And to me, Dan is just a naturally funny person. He's just funny. He gets humor. He laughs at the same shit I do. We both love Airplane, you know, Mel Brooks movies, Woody Allen, like, Curb your enthusiasm, the similar vibes, you know what I mean? His brother doesn't have that. His brother was excellent at producing Garden State. He picked a good soundtrack, made good money. And I hate, you know, I don't want to say this, but I have to say this like, and all my comedian people, we all know you're born with funny. You're just born. You're lucky if you understand humor. I got cousins that are hilarious, funnier than me. All my relatives, basically, my brother, we're all got lucky with the funny gene. We just got it from our family. We were super blessed. And you either have it or you don't. And Dan's brother doesn't have it. I'm sorry, bro, if you're listening, you just don't have the comedy gift. But that's okay. That's okay. Some people have a dramatic gift. Some people have a serious gift. I wish at times I was more serious in life. I'd probably be further along financially, you know what I mean, professionally. I'd probably, if I had more serious in me, but I choose fun and funny over serious and sometimes. So Dan says, we're going to have to include my brother, and I hope this doesn't come to bite us in the ass, but we got to just get him in the mix. He's going to call you. You're going to have a talk on the phone, and he's got a guy that works with him, and you guys are going to go over it and start the process. So I get my first check. I put it in the bank. I get a call one day from, from Gary Gilbert, and he's got this assistant at the time, Jordan, Jordan Horowitz, and the, both of them are on the phone. And I'll never forget, I was in Phoenix performing with a Young American Comedy Tour. Me and like Sebastian and Bobby Lee were on tour. I'm at a pool in Phoenix, and I'm pacing around on the telephone, and they had already read my outline. So Jordan Horowitz and Gary are on the phone and Jordan just starts. And now I, 
uh, three seconds in, I realized, shit, man, this guy Jordan, he doesn't have comedy either. These are two serious people with no comedy gift who are about to have a conversation with me about a comedy. So it's going south quick. I see this. I see his mom walking in, him faking his you know, suicide. And then I see you know, his Russian maid stealing from him. And this is hilarious. And he can't get his life together. And it's a struggle. And even when he tried to truly kill himself, he dropped the pills and couldn't even get his hands to be coordinated enough to hang himself. You know, And I'm, I'm spilling my guts because I'm feeling it. And they're just like, well, don't you think this is more of a dramatic uh, story, a tragedy? I don't really see the comedy. So now I'm having my first creative battle with these two. And I'm like, my brain goes up. You know, now I'm, now I'm thinking about exactly what Scorsese said. If you're not physically ill by the story that you're telling or by the process, you're not doing it right. I'm already physically ill, and it's only the first story meeting. So, and listen, if you're an executive, I got love for you too. But you know, the best executives that I've worked with and the best people in the business, they let the artists do their thing, and they get them back on track when they're off track. You know, I sold a TV show with Scott Stuber. Scott Stuber's the head of Netflix Originals. Scott Stuber let me do my thing. Boom. When he hit me with the notes, they were usually right on. He was right on. You know, some people have a feel. Some people have the touch. Some don't. So I'm on the phone, and I don't care if they did. When I say that they produced La La Land, they put $3 million into it. They didn't creatively sing songs or write songs. or They just put the money into it. So... These are money guys coming from a producer's point of view who I wish had a better sense of humor. So, oh man, it's raining outside. It could be raining on my hockey equipment. So we start our first conversation and it doesn't go great. It doesn't go the way I really want it to go. But I already have the job and the, and, and the handshake deal is done and I got half the money in the bank. So... You know, I remember, I'll never forget Jordan Horowitz saying to me on the phone, oh man, oh man, you, you know, you're, at, least you're, at least you're passionate about it, at least you're passionate about it. But I'm like, passionate, bro? I'm here to try to win an Oscar, bro. You know what I mean? What do you mean I'm passionate about it? This kid almost lost his life. He's sitting in a wheelchair, you know what I mean? Since he's 23 years old, you think I'm not going to be passionate? So I'm already, I'm a freaking, I already know what I am, Okay. Who the F is Mike Young? He's a hood from Detroit who just wants to do well. I know what I am. I know where my DNA comes from. All right? I saw my grandfather hand an envelope to somebody one day when we were in Toronto. Don't worry about who I am. Bottom line is I'm starting to get heated. So I call. We have our meeting. I call Dan. I go, man, your brother and his assistant, they're not really funny, huh? Like, they're not funny. And Dan's like, God damn it. I'm gonna I'll, let me talk to him. I'm gonna tell him to stay off you. Just get to work writing. I don't even want to talk to these guys. So we're already going down this path. So let me fast forward you. So I go to work and I write the movie of my dreams in my mind. I'm what I in my mind what I wrote. I still have it on my computer. I won an, in my mind. I won an Oscar. It's the best. It's the movie of the year. It's the best piece that I've ever written because the story was already there. I really just had to structure it and add my two cents and navigate and create, you know, create the beats and the ups and downs and the, give it some more emotional weight in certain spots. But it, it was already there. I was just the vessel for this. So when I was done with it, I went to work. I wrote the first draft. I thought I wrote a, the best thing I ever wrote. I swear. I thought I was so excited. I couldn't wait. So 
I'll fast forward you 12 weeks later. Script is done. Dan Gilbert calls me. He goes, this is better than I ever thought. I, I can't believe how good this is. This is exactly, oh, my God. Yeah, he was so excited. Like, you got to come to Detroit and sit down with me. We're going to talk. We're going to go over this thing. Now, when Dan says he wants to go over something, this is the type of guy that takes out a pencil and a yellow legal pad and is willing to go line by line on your script. It's psychotic. It's unbelievable, but it, I don't even, I'm not mad because he's given me my first opportunity to make a movie and he is this passionate about it as well. So I'm in his office. I meet him at six o'clock. We're there till one thirty in the morning going over the script and we line it up and Dan's like, oh, by the end of it, he's like, I love it. We're good. All right, let's go. Let's talk about this. We're, I got the money. I'm coming out of my own pocket. I don't care. He's ready to spend $5 million of his own dollars to make this movie. So I'm like, game time, game time. I can't believe it. Now, through this process, I have had three or four fights with Gary Gilbert and Jordan Horowitz. At least three or four creative battles. And it's always over story beats and tone. They don't get tone because they didn't understand the comedy tone of it. So... We fight, we fight, but I'm cool, I'm cool, because I got Dan who's financing the whole thing, and he's my boy, and we're like a team against their team. And Adam is on my team, and Adam's on Dan's team, and it's me, Adam, and Dan against these guys. And, you know, I don't like to get in the middle of family tension. That's not, I don't ever want to do that. Brothers have way deeper relationships and way more history going back than I would ever have. Like, that's not my world. I don't get into these family fights. But now I'm finding myself like in the middle of a family fight because Dan and Gary are fighting. And so it's always over this damn movie. So the script is done. Everything is a go. Gary's like, I'm going to go get CAA and we're going to put them on the call. We're going to have a call with all the agents there. And and we're going to just have one great conference call. And really it's because everybody's looking for money in Hollywood and Dan's got the money. So they're going to take this call, right? They're taking the call. So I'll never forget this, and it's so beautiful. And this is why I love Dan, because he don't give a fuck. We're on a phone with like six agents, the top guys at CAA. And they're good dudes. Like, they're really good dudes. I know a couple of them. I, I can't, I think, I, I don't know if Kevin Huvane was on the phone, or um, I forgot the other guys' names. But like, I had done a project earlier, more name dropping on my end. But I did a project with Toby McGuire, and these, uh, they were doing a sitcom based on my life, and I had a development deal with ABC. Long story short, I walk into Toby's house. Three CAA agents are sitting in his living room watching my stand-up comedy from a late-night show that I did. It was very uncomfortable and weird, yet very, uh, I don't know. I, it was like the first time I felt like I wasn't even a human being. I was just like a thing that they were trying to sell which I get it. That's the business and I'm cool. So we get on the phone, six, seven agents on their end, plus Gary, plus Gary, plus Jordan. And the agents just start talking. Hey, Dan, nice to meet you. Great to meet you, Dan. Hey, listen, you know, it's good. It's incredible. You know, Steven Spielberg's looking for a dramatic piece like this. You know, maybe this is something we can talk to Leonardo DiCaprio about. Yeah. And they start throwing out just heavyweight names. Heavy net Tarantino might be interested in directing this. And let me tell you something, Dan. We can get half our financing from the Fox Searchlight people, and we could actually go over to Sony. I know uh, Tom Bernard at Sony's looking for something like this. 
and we could just do some co-financing situations, and I blah blah. And Dan just goes like this. He goes, uh, "Guys, uh, guys, yeah, yeah, uh, Dan, Dan Gilbert here. How, how are you? Hey, hey. So just uh, so everyone knows, I'm not looking for partners. I'm financing this out of my own pocket. I don't need anybody else's money. Let's just talk about talent. <laughs> and the whole conversation on the other end just got quiet. Just he just came out with just like some gangster shit like I don't need your money I'm not looking for anything let's just talk about who's starring in the movie he froze up everybody we got off the call and I was like a giddy 12 year old I was like oh shit you shut down the whole industry dad you just told everyone's looking for money you don't even need the money we got next thing I know we're in full motion to go make this movie now at the time I'm not even thinking about being a director of this movie I'm dreaming about being a director in my own brain but I already know I got heavy battles to cross with with Gary and Jordan so we get the script tight in my mind script is ready to go they bring on a line producer we're gonna shoot this thing in Detroit and we're gonna start casting so at the time this sounds crazy but I'm friends with Emil Hirsch and Emil Hirsch did Into the Wild, and he's a great actor. He's in uh, Once Upon a Time at Hollywood. He's in 100 movies. So I'm friends with Emil Hirsch. There's a guy named Michael Burke who directed Emil in a Showtime movie that came out called Mudge Boy or some weird movie. It was like some real dark, dark world crazy shit. I didn't like it at all, but Gary and his boy Jordan are like, we're going to get this uh, director, Michael Burke. He really did our edgy, artistic film. And blah, blah, blah. So everything's in motion. Script is ready. We're going to shoot. Emil Hirsch, I get Emil the script. He hits me back. Dude, this is a fucking amazing script. I'm in. I want to do it. So they start doing negotiations. I get Emil. They start doing. They start negotiating with Emil. His schedule is a little messed up. For some reason, he can't do it. I'm on an airplane flying somewhere. I had never watched Breaking Bad before. I wasn't in, I just never saw it. I heard about it, heard all the great things about it, but I actually never saw Breaking Bad. So I'm on an airplane and a dude next to me has his laptop open and he's watching Breaking Bad. I can't hear the sound. I can't hear anything, but I glance over and I see Aaron Paul crying, fighting with Cranston on the ground, like in some dramatic, crazy scene. And he's like exactly the age that Adam was. And I'm like, what is that that you're watching? Sorry. He's like, Breaking Bad, man. It's the best show ever. When we land, I call Gary and Jordan. I go, you got to go talk to this kid, Aaron Paul. I don't know about the show. I've never seen it really, but I just saw the scene. And this kid looks amazing. And everybody says it's the best show ever. And Jordan's like, oh, I definitely know who he is. I mean, I've been in touch with his people for a long time. Let me reach out. That's a great idea. Next thing you know, bam, Aaron Paul, signed, sealed, delivered, locked in for the movie. So we got Aaron Paul locked in, and the audition process starts, and they keep me out of everything. Gary and Jordan keep me out of the process, and I'm cool with it. I'm just a writer. I I get it. I get it. I get it that nothing happens in any production ever, ever in the history of production without writers but go ahead. You could disrespect us, put us down, keep us where you got to keep us. We get it. We're just mechanics. I'm all good with that at this moment. So I get no word on anything. Aaron Paul signed on. Now they got this kid, Michael Weston. 
great actor. He had been in a bunch of stuff. He did an amazing job on Six Feet Under, like a classic moment in, in, in TV cinema, in TV, does that even make sense? In TV drama history, he was this incredible character. I watched some stuff on him. Boom, they lock in Michael Weston to play his, uh, Aaron Paul's brother. So Aaron's playing Adam. Michael Weston's playing Ross. Jeff Daniels, they fucking lock in Jeff Daniels, a Michigan man. All right, from Ann Arbor, Michigan. He's going to play Dan, a version of Dan, the head of the company that tries to help out Adam and get his life in order. And this is coming together like beauty. It's just coming together. I'm with, I'm with Dan the whole time. I don't need to talk to Gary and Jordan. Everything is in full motion, and we're good. So they set up shop in Detroit, and I'm so excited. My first movie ever. I'm telling everybody. The whole crew in Detroit knows what's up. Everybody wants to come to the set when it all goes down and hang out. And we get to Detroit, and I get there, and our first big meeting. And I, by the way, I'm not, I don't have to be at these meetings, but Dan is demanding that I'm there because now he made me an executive producer, and I'm his eyes on the movie because he can't always be there because he's running the world. So I'm in the meetings. And we're at the table reads, and I'm everywhere. And Gary and Jordan start down the path of, we need to bring in another writer to do a punch-up rewrite. There's too many funny moments in this script. And now the war begins. And this is where it all starts to go south. So they bring in a great writer, by the way, a kid who's written on Ray Donovan. He's written a bunch of amazing stuff. But everything I've seen is amazing yet dramatic. And like I said, funny is something that you either have or you don't. And I'm not mad at him. I'm not going to say his name. He did a damn good job. You could see his name on the credits. But he came in with a little writing crew, and they start to trim up and do a little punch-up rewrite on my script. And this is where I'm starting to get physically ill. I'm, I'm just, I want to choke this dude Jordan out. I can't believe this is happening. I'm so upset. I'm telling Dan they're wrecking the movie. They're ruining it. They bring in this director who did the movie Mudge Boy, who, by the way, he's a very nice guy. Very nice guy. But he, I can tell when he gets to Detroit, something's not right with him mentally. He's got a funny look in his eye. He's overworked. He's overstressed. Somehow he was spending five months in China teaching film to Chinese students. And I don't know what happened over there, but maybe he had pre-coronavirus. I don't even know what was wrong with him. But I told Dan, I said, something's not right with the dude. He doesn't look healthy. And so everyone's in Detroit. The, cat, the, the, the schedule's getting made. They got a line producer who's stealing money and nobody knows it. I tried to get my sister-in-law a job as a, as a wardrobe girl and they disrespect my sister-in-law. So that was fight number one. I go in on Gary Gilbert. I'm like, what's wrong with you, bro? She's more than capable of handling this job. He tries to make an excuse and say she was late. Knowing my sister-in-law, ex-sister-in-law at this time, at this point, she probably was late. She could have been late, you know, whatever. Bottom line is I'm a guy who like if you're good if you're good at your job and you're my fan and your family, you're in. I'm connecting you. It's what I do. It's what we do. It's what you should do. It's not even a favor. It's just like you're great. Six other people are just are great, but I know you and that's it. But it didn't work out with her. So that happens. Meanwhile, she creates the logo for the movie that they steal from her that Gary that they end up using, all right? We'll get into that maybe never. 
So the movie's in motion. I'm having creative battles. I'm getting rewritten by this little camp of Hollywood writers that come in, and they're not understanding the funny, and the movie's becoming more and more dramatic. And I'm telling Dan, dude, I'm telling you this shit is looking, it's not what we intended to do. The funny is coming out of this thing, man. And like, this is supposed to be Little Miss Sunshine in tone. They're ruining the movie. He gets into a fight with his brother. I'll pull the plug. I don't need you guys. I'll start this whole thing from scratch. Back and forth, back and forth. Jordan's piping in, piping in every now and then. And he's just, now he's just gnawing me, gnawing me. And I'm getting pushed aside more and more, which I didn't even really want to be in those rooms. But Dan kept saying, go there, go there, check on everybody. So now I'm like feeling like, am I a snitch? Am I a writer? I don't even know where I am, man. I'm just in the middle of this thing. I'm talking to Adam on the side. It's his damn story. He and I are like, what the fuck's going on? The train is moving and we're not even on it. It's his story and I wrote it. It's all becoming a mess. So we're moving forward. I tell Dan, the look in this director's eye is not right. I think he's losing his mind, man. He's not making sense at the table readings. He's saying weird shit. I get a phone call four days later at 1 o'clock in the morning from Jordan Horowitz. Jordan says, Mike, uh, don't say anything to anybody. This is uh, really private. But they found the director walking the streets of Detroit at 4.30 in the morning yelling out different people's names. They put him in a psych ward, and he's uh, not going to be doing this movie. So uh, please don't say anything to anybody, but I'll call you tomorrow. So we lost the director. He's done. I called it the first day. I said, this guy's got a wide-eyed problem. Something's wrong with his brain. He's stressed out. Maybe he's dehydrated from all the flying. Something's happening. This dude is not the dude that's going to make this movie. He gets us put in a straight jacket. They throw him into a psych ward. They ship him back to China. Now we need a director. The movie's full of problems. They bring in a director, Mike Uppendahl. Very nice guy, man. Mike Uppendahl, shout out. Talented writer from Mad Men. Directed a few Mad Men episodes. He's a great dude. This is going to be his first independent film. He's excited, but he's like, yo, what happened to the comedy of this thing? Because I thought it was a tragic comedy. We don't even want to get into it. He starts down the road. He begins the battle. So I don't want to drag this out too long, but just remember, this is six years ago. Since then, I wrote and directed My Man is a Loser. Lionsgate bought it. I wrote and directed a stand-up guy. Netflix bought it. It's Both movies are out. This movie, trouble. Still trouble. So... Up and Dolls locked in his director, Jeff Daniels, Tom Berenger, Lena Olin, Aaron Paul, uh, uh, Michael Weston, Celia, uh, I forgot her last name, but she's like a legendary theater actress who's incredible. She plays Adam's mom, Berenger plays his dad. We got a beautiful cast, and this shit, everybody, most of the people have re- had read the script when I wrote it, and now they're rereading it again as it has been rewritten. And everybody's a little half miserable because they can't believe that the comedy got taken out of the script. But I can't say anything. I got to bite my tongue because now I'm in the middle of a family dispute. So one day I have my last conversation with Jordan and Gary on the phone. And I'm like, you know, you guys are you're butchering the script. You're fucking ruined the vision. What are you doing? I've been in this thing since day one. You don't even know Adam. You don't hang out with him. I know what this is. And so we have that fight. I go home. I'm heated. I'm heated. 
this is, mis- you know, I regret this. I could say I regret this. I crafted an email and I wrote it to these two guys and I said, you're the least funny people that I've ever met in my life. You have no business doing a comedy. I don't know what you're doing trying to sabotage this movie, but you don't know funny and I can't believe we're even having conversations about it. Boom. I stewed it over. I thought about not sending it, not sending it, not sending it. I floated my thumb over the button a couple times. I floated it. I floated it. Bam. My thumb dropped in, and I sent the damn thing, and I sent the email. I let it rest. Two days later, I'm at Nate Nail's Deli. I'm sitting with my cousin, Pam, and her husband, Scott. Scott's an agent at UTA. He's a big-time talent agent. I'm sitting there. We're just having a nice little deli breakfast or lunch. I see Gary Gilbert calls me. I look at the phone. says, Gary Gilbert. I tell Scott, oh, I forgot to tell you, man. There's, I, I got a problem with this guy. Let's see what he has to say. I put it on speakerphone because I don't want to put the phone to my ear because of brain cancer. So I put I put it on speakerphone. I say, hello. All of a sudden, from out of the phone, you just hear, who the fuck do you think you are? Nobody yells at me like that. Are you crazy? You're fired. Don't even show up on the set. Don't come around me anymore. You're done. You're done. Nobody talks to me like that. I can't but do. And I cut him off and I hung up. And Scott's like, what the hell was that? I said, I sent him an email. I told him he wasn't funny and I got a problem. He's like, that was stupid. You should never do that. And don't send emails like that if you ever want to make another movie. Meanwhile, I've made four since then. But I did learn a big lesson and that is I could handle things better. But that's my whole life. I don't know what to say. My whole life, I've taken deep breaths. I learned about meditation. But when I truly believe in something so strong... I just fight for it, and that's it. I'm just, that's what it is. So that got me in trouble. My name got taken off the, the call sheet because as executive producer, I was allowed to come to the set, but I got fired right away, and that was done. So Dan finds out. He's like, why are you not on the call sheet? I said, I yelled at your brother. I got into it with him. I'm sorry. I, and I like Gary as a person. Like, I like him as a person. But as a creative, funny person, we weren't clicking. It just wasn't clicking. But I I like him as a human. So bottom line is, Dan reads the email. I send it to him. He goes, Sal, what did you say to him? I send him the email. He goes, that's the best email I've ever seen in my life. Fuck everybody. You're going back on the set. So now I'm like a pawn in the game of a family fight. So bottom line is, the movie's called Grounded. We go... We find another director. The movie gets made. The movie, in my opinion, the first cut I saw of it was not good. I was heartbroken. I was wrenched. And they, since then, this has been six years, okay? Six years. I've already done two, three, going on my fourth movie because I've been lucky to make some comedies and I sold a couple dramas, whatever, but... We went down the line and we screened the movie and they made the movie and Dan and I sat there and looked at each other and Adam, Adam, we all looked at each other like, what the fuck happened? What happened? And Dan and his brother got into this big battle over this movie and I was already on to the rest of my life and they battled over this movie and the movie got held up and never released even though it was shot six years ago. And I bring this up today, the day of the Oscars, because the only redemption that I had with this whole situation was when La La Land got announced as best picture last year or two years ago. 
and it was a mistake, and Moonlight was really the movie that won Best Picture, it was Jordan, my bane of existence. It was Jordan who had to give the Oscar back and give it to Moonlight and say, I'm sorry, there's been a mistake. And I'll say this, Jordan, you handled it well. You, very, you really did, man. You handled it well. And I've heard that you've been through your own you know, personal dramas in your life, and we all have, and I, I, I don't hate you, bro. I realize that making a movie is a very complicated thing. It t- it's hundreds of people are involved. You have to get on the same train and flow together and have the one vision that many people you know, it takes many people to make one vision and that vision is never going to be exactly what you thought it was, but let it be a lesson to all of us. Let it be a lesson to you guys that when you're dealing with something that has comedy in it, bring in comedy people, let the comedy people do what they do. You know, let my lesson be hold firm and don't send wild emails to producers of your movie because that'll get around and people will say Mike Young's a wild card but I'm not a wild card and I know I'm not a wild card because I get to work with so many quality people and I flow with so many great people that I respect and love but if I'm passionate about something and it doesn't go the way that I think it's going I have to speak up I have to speak my mind and I spoke my mind I sent an email that backfired against me The movie did not become the movie I thought it was going to be. The good news is the movie is called Grounded, starring Aaron Paul and Jeff Daniels. Dan and Gary ironed out their differences somehow through time and through healing. And the movie actually got sold and will probably be out in 2021. So believe it or not, movies sometimes get made and sometimes they take a long time to get out and you don't know the backstory of it. But that's the story of my first feature film. It's Oscar Sunday. And I just wanted to say this because I want to say Adam passed away last year from complications due to infection that he received in the hospital. And this was a story about a guy who got his life back on track after a tragic, tragic accident. And he was an example of what you can be in this life and that you don't want to complain about your life because it could always be worse and it could be taken away from you at any moment. And so he was a great example of how to live through tragedy and how to overcome adversity and make something something of yourself. So there were many lessons learned in this journey. I got love for Jordan, even though, you know, I threatened you and we were going to meet up in an alley at one point, but I got love for you, bro. Gary, you know, I got love for you too. You know that. Dan's been through his things, you know, more recently, and Dan is just the man and deserves to have this movie put out in the best possible way because he's a special, inspirational dude, too. And so that's my who the F is Mike Young because a lot of people just know me as a comedian, but they have no idea that I've been through these wars, you know, writing and directing and throwing off projects and getting into battles and That's it. I just want to tell my story on this podcast. So thanks for listening, and I will talk to you later. Go Oscars. Go Leo. Take me back when I was a kid. Take me back Never had to worry about what I did. The one time I'm a man now. Check it out. Gotta get it down. No time for fun now. Take me back when I was a kid. 
had to worry about what I did. Coming back for you. But I'm a man now. Where we going now?